welcome to the Good Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Charles Nichols. Dr. Nichols is a professor of pharmacology at Louisiana State University in New Orleans and has been studying the molecular, genetic, and behavioral effects of psychedelics for almost 25 years. He is considered one of the world's top scientific experts on the biological effects of psychedelics in the brain and body. I spoke to Charles for almost two hours. We covered a wide range of topics related to psychedelics, including everything from how psychedelics impact the serotonin system in the brain, the similarities and differences between drugs like psilocybin and ketamine, how microdosing specific psychedelic drugs can lead to potent anti-inflammatory effects, and much, much more. Charles is really a wealth of information on this general topic, and I learned a lot of things that I had no idea about before going into it. If you find the content in this episode interesting, please consider liking, sharing, or subscribing. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Charles Nichols. Professor Nichols, thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you for inviting me. So um, where where are you calling in from today? I am calling in from New Orleans, Louisiana. And so you're a professor of pharmacology down there in New Orleans, is that right? Right, right. Louisiana State University Health Science Center. It's one of the medical schools um, in the city, just north of the quarter. So you've been, how long have you been down there at LSU? I've been down here since the year before Katrina. So that would have been 2004, 16 years. Okay, wow. So you've been doing this. You've been a professor of pharmacology and you've been studying psychedelics for for quite a while now, longer than not everyone, but but most people (laughs) out there, I think. And I just want to start by saying what or having you talk about what, what are psychedelics? What are the classical psychedelics? What are tryptamines and how do they differ chemically from non-classical psychedelics? What's going on with the chemistry there? Okay. So psychedelics, um, in terms of the terminology, the names, has really kind of been fluid over the last 50, 60 years. Uh, for a long time, they were called hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. And hallucinogens really cover anything that um, could potentially alter your perception or your thinking, uh, produce hallucinations. And that would include something like marijuana, PCP, LSD, um, anything would change your perception is sort of broadly categorized as a hallucinogen. Um, Psychedelic was a specific term coined for LSD by Humphrey Osmond, sort of as a mind, I mean, to mean mind manifesting. And more recently, um, sort of the modern pharmacological era, uh, we've, we've made an effort to redefine what a psychedelic is uh, from a scientific standpoint. And the consensus is now a psychedelic is considered a drug that primarily produces its perceptual and behavioral effects by activation of a particular protein in the brain called a serotonin 2A receptor. Um, so that distinguishes it from other hallucinogens because its main mechanism of action is through this one particular serotonin receptor as opposed to, say, ketamine, which is from um, a different receptor target, or uh, marijuana, which is from yet another different receptor target. Mm-hmm. 
So, so what are the major examples of these 5-HT2A receptor activating classic psychedelics? Right. The classic psychedelics are really sort of the ones that are found in nature or are very closely related to the ones found in nature. So the classic psychedelic would be something like psilocybin, which is found in uh, the magic mushrooms, uh, mescaline, which is from the peyote cactus, and LSD is also thrown in there as a classic psychedelic because it's very, very closely related to the ergot alkaloid, um, the ergotamines. So um, the classic really refers to sort of the prototype psychedelic or psychedelic that's found in nature. Another one is DMT, dimethyltryptamine, mm-hmm. uh, which is also found in several plants. So those are what we consider the classic psychedelics are really the ones that are the, the ones found in nature or the prototypes for what has been modified in the subsequent decades to sort of the, the new new class of psychedelics, which are um, more like uh, like 2CB, something like that, which is a, uh, or DOM, which mm-hmm. is a modification of the basic structure of mescaline. And for tryptamines, uh, you have DMT and psilocybin are tryptamines. And those are considered the classic, but you have all kinds of modifications, chemical modifications of the tryptamines, like, uh, for example, DIPT, um, or I, I suppose 5-methoxy DMT could be considered a classic as well because it's also found mm-hmm. um, in nature. But all the chemical modifications, these research chemicals, those are sort of the newer class and not really considered the, the classics. So the um, so the tryptamines in particular, things mm-hmm. like LSD, psilocybin, DMT, they are how how are they made or how are they structurally related to neurotransmitters in the brain? The uh, tryptamines especially are very closely related to serotonin, which is um, an endogenous neurotransmitter in in the body. It's uh, a five hydroxytryptamine and 5-HT, and the modifications of that, for example, to make psilocybin, um, uh, you have, uh, uh, you could put a little molecule here, a molecule there, and you've got psilocybin or psilocin, which is the active metabolite. Um, gotcha. So basically you take the, the structure, the skeleton of serotonin, you add a few atoms to one piece or another, and that's how you would get the classical psychedelics. So they're, they're very close structurally. Right, right. And when you have a, when you have a, um, a structure like LSD, then you have, um, you have, it's called an ergoline structure. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit separated from, um, from uh, the structure of serotonin or tryptamine, but ergoline is, is more of, if you can imagine the structure of serotonin has two rings on it. You've got a six-membered carbon ring and then a five-membered ring uh, with a nitrogen on it and this little tail that goes up with a nitrogen here and there's a, an oxygen and a hydroxy up there. That's serotonin. If you take that structure, you move the hydroxy, the oxygen, over one, then you add a little bit more to the nitrogen then you have uh, silosin. But with a LSD, which is an ergoline, you take that same basic two-ring structure and you add another set of rings on top of that. Um, that is 
the basis of the ergolene. So the ergolines and the tryptamines all have the, the, the structure of the neurotransmitter serotonin. Um, because of that, the ergolines and tryptamines like psilocin, DMT, 5-methoxy-DMT, they will bind to and activate several different types of serotonin receptors. Um, so when somebody is taking psilocin or DMT, they're not just activating the serotonin 2A receptor that produces the psychedelic effects, but they're also activating um, the 1A type receptor, the 1B type receptor. Uh, they're interacting with the 7, serotonin 7 receptor. There's actually 14 different serotonin receptors, and they're probably interacting with half a dozen of them. So there's a lot of serotonin receptors. There's many different kinds of receptors. Right. What is, how prevalent are they in the brain? Are they located in one or two areas? Is it sort of throughout the whole brain? What, mm-hmm. what do we know about that? These are primarily throughout the whole brain. Uh, the thing about the target of psychedelics, the 5-HT2A receptor, the highest expression of the 5-HT2A receptor is in the prefrontal cortex. Mm. Uh, that's the executive part of the brain. It's decision. It's the consciousness is happening there. Um, very, very high expression in uh, really the higher brain centers. But there's also high expression in the visual cortex, which is um, sort of towards the back of the brain. And it's thought that activation of, the, of those receptors in the visual cortex gives rise to, say, the geometric patterns that people will see while taking psychedelics. Uh, which is different from sort of the outright hallucinations that people will see, which is more mediated from, from the, the higher brain centers. But there's also, these receptors are expressed throughout the entire brain, um, just the, at higher levels in, in, the, in the cortex. And so the one that you hear most about is this 5-HT2A receptor. Mm -hmm. People even call it the psychedelic receptor. How do we know that's the one that primarily mediates the classical hallucinatory effects and is it is it doing that completely or is there involvement from other receptors as well um that's in in humans it wasn't really validated until recently uh, we've known that in animals for a while because we've we've had drugs that will block that receptor and if you block that receptor say in a rat and then give it lsd it doesn't have the typical lsd induced behaviors uh and in humans, it was a study out of Franz Wallenbeiter's group several years ago where they gave a blocking drug to the 2A receptor specifically. Mm-hmm. And then they showed that if they then gave psilocybin, that um, there was no, no behavioral effects. Gotcha. So you take psilocybin, you get the classical effects of magic mushrooms. But if you are first given a right. drug that blocks 5-HD2A, that pretty much goes away completely. Right, right. Right. And another researcher who's been following up on a lot of those studies is Katrin Preller. Uh, She's been doing functional studies by giving this drug called Ketanserin prior to doing lots of functional imaging and and psychological studies and demonstrating that uh, pretty much is about all the effects of these classic psychedelics are mediated through this protein. Because if she blocks it, all the effects are blocked. Gotcha. So at one level, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing that I've always wondered about is if most of those classic psychedelic effects are being mediated by 5-HD2A receptors, how is it that a drug like, say, LSD versus DMT, NNDMT mm-hmm. versus 5-MeO-DMT have right. very different levels of um, visual hallucination? Yeah, that's, that's the magic of pharmacology, <laughs> that 
how, how a drug interacts with the receptor really changes the nature of how that receptor responds. So when you have a drug that even could have from the 5-methoxy as opposed to a 4-hydroxy, that is going to engage different residues in the binding pocket of the receptor. So when it binds, it's going to induce it into a slightly different conformation. And that's going to affect how it activates or um, influences the activity within that cell and its neuronal firing properties. So one of the reasons is um, between different psychedelics, they're, they're activating the receptor slightly differently to induce different effects in the cell, but they also have slightly different serotonin receptor profiles that they'll bind to, or potentially in the case of LSD, they'll also activate dopamine receptors. Mm -hmm. So if you're pulling in slightly different subsets of receptors, you're activating the receptor slightly differently. Um, it's, it's not comparing apples to oranges, but maybe an orange to a tangerine, something like that. It's, it, it provides the, it's that pharmacology that gives the texture to the different types of experiences. I see. So when you think about brain receptors and you hear about brain receptors, they're not simple on off switches. They can actually be no. turned on in different ways. Right. Right. And so I guess that would be, that would be why, you know, I get asked all the time, well, if we have endogenous cannabinoids, how come I'm not high all the time? If these psychedelics are so close to serotonin, mm -hmm. how come taking an SSRI isn't making me trip? And is that, is that right. the answer that the endogenous compounds are engaging some of the same receptors, but they're just doing it in a very different way? Yeah, partially, partially. Um, especially for um, like why, if, if you just increase serotonin levels, mm -hmm. you can do that uh, by modifying your diet. You don't start hallucinating. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is that you're activating all the receptors and there's a lot of some antagonism between what these receptors are doing on the cell. So if you activate one serotonin receptor, it'll block what the other one's doing. So, um, so the, it, part of that is going on, but also uh, these drugs are really, they're activating the receptor differently. And that's a, a process called functional selectivity. So that's one of the things that we're exploring in my laboratory is how these different types of psychedelics will differentially activate and recruit different different signaling pathways from the same receptor and how can we exploit that to either potentially make new drugs that will be mm -hmm. say anti-inflammatory versus more behavioral. Um, we can engineer out some of the psychoactive effects uh, or if you want to do the opposite, get rid of the anti-inflammatory effects and engineer in the psychoactive effects. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really trying to understand that. And that's what is really kind of an unknown right now. Gotcha. Yeah, I definitely want to ask you more about that. This the the idea of engineering in or out certain components of what a psychedelic drug might do. But first, can we just talk about you know let's talk about serotonin generally. Mm -hmm. So you've got serotonin as this endogenous neurotransmitter that's used for lots of different stuff. You've got something like the 5-HT2A receptor, which is one of the most abundant receptors in the brain. It's mm -hmm. located, as you said, throughout the cortex. What what is that receptor system and what is that transmitter system doing at you know in in um, in ecological terms? What is what is the natural function? The natural function is serotonin is not like a fast neurotransmitter. When you think of neurotransmitters, people think of um, an electrical signal causes a release of neurotransmitter from the presynapse to the postsynapse, and that starts another electrical signal. That's called fast neurotransmission. And that's mediated by a neurotransmitter um, in the brain uh, uh, called glutamate. And serotonin is not really a synaptic transmitter with regards to the 5-HT2A receptor. It's more of a volumetric that it's, 
it's sort of controlling. And I, I like to think of serotonin sort of as a conductor of, of an orchestra that you're telling this section to become you know, louder, this section to become softer, and it's modulating the activity of specific brain regions and circuits. It's not really causing neurons to fire or not fire, but it's enabling them uh, to become more or less responsive. And where serotonin 2A receptors are on the neurons, they're not really on the axons, they're not in the synapses, they're on the what, what we call the apical dendrites in the cell body. So in the cell bodies and a little bit of the tree up to the dendrite. So when serotonin is present, what it's doing is it's making these neurons in the brain more responsive to activation when the input is releasing glutamate on them. So it's, it's kind of turning, turning up the gain of the system a little bit. I see. So, so when something, whether it's serotonin or a psychedelic or some other drug, when it's mm -hmm. interacting with something like the 5-HG2A receptor, it's changing how entire networks of neurons respond to the signals that they're going to get anyway. Right, right. And that's, that's one of the things that we've looked at in our laboratory at how, how these different types of cells and networks respond at that level. Um, and we had a paper a few years ago where we were um, directly uh, sorting and purifying the cells that were activated by psychedelics and comparing them to the cells that weren't activated by psychedelics to see how they were different and then looking at how they were activated in different brain regions. So that we found that uh, a neuron, a, a type of neuron we call a preambul neuron, which is in layer five of the cortex, that's where the highest density of these two A receptors are. Um, but that type of neuron, if it's activated by a psychedelic, say in the prefrontal cortex versus the somatosensory cortex or the motor cortex is having a different cellular response. Hmm. Um, so depending upon where a particular neuron is in the brain, it's responding somewhat differently to the psychedelic and how it's, it's changing how that neuron is going to respond to signals from the outside. And I think in addition to that, we also have 2A receptors that are on uh, these cells that are connecting the neurons together called interneurons. And a lot of those types of interneurons are inhibitory. Mm -hmm. So they damp down the, um, the activity of, of the neurons. And there's a, a particular type of interneuron called a, a fast spiking GABAergic um, parvalbumin interneuron. And that's responsible for generating the gamma wave oscillations, which a lot of people propose, that's what really synchronizes the brain together. And we're, we're modulating the activity of those directly with psychedelics as well. So it's not just effects on the neurons, it's effects on these other accessory types of, of cells and glia cells that um, are locally disrupting kind of the cohesion of these networks, but that's happening differently from one circuit to another. Gotcha. So, so this 5-HD2A receptor system, it doesn't act locally, it acts globally. Right. And you can have both excitatory and inhibitory effects. Is this why mm -hmm. in a lot of the imaging and EEG studies that have been done on psilocybin and other psychedelics, they're tending to see a basically a decrease in cortical activity? Is that is that linked to mm -hmm. what you're talking about here? It's 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 a it's a little bit uh, more complicated than just a, a decrease in cortical activity. What they're looking at is uh, mostly blood flow, mm -hmm. and it would you would think that okay, decrease blood flow, you have a decrease in cortical activity. But there's also some imaging studies done with 
chlorodeoxyglucose um, that show that there's increased metabolic activity sort of in these same areas. So there could be a decoupling between blood flow and metabolic activity, but psychedelics are definitely changing brain activity either by increasing activity or decreasing activity um, in these really circuit and regional specific areas. Gotcha. So, so there's this broad spectrum effect all over the place and right. it's, it's complicated. It's not, it's not the same effect in every location. It's actually distinct right, effects right. in distinct places. Right. I think what, what you're seeing at the cellular level is you're disrupting these, the local uh, microcircuitry networks uh, through the, um, through the uh, parvalbumin interneurons, the preambular neurons and the somatostatin interneurons were also disrupting. So you're, you're, you're sort of dissolving the cohesion of these local net local micro networks that then spread to the more global networks. And I think that's really what's underlying what groups uh, like Robin Carhart Harris and David Nutt have seen with the disintegration of the default mode network. Mm-hmm. That it's it really is starting with these local disruptions between the interneurons and the excitatory interneurons, and it spreads from there, but differently from different brain regions, which is why it's it's heterogeneous. You get some areas will be showing more connectivity. Um, some less connectivity, but I think by and large, the, under the peak experience, there's this hyper connectivity of brain regions. I see. And I would imagine too, there's, there's a significant time component to this. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the network activity will probably change a lot moment to moment and probably differently right. for different people. Right. Right. Interesting. So what about the other thing that I keep seeing research done around and where links are at least trying to be made is uh, for depression and neurogenesis. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, the sort of textbook high school level understanding of serotonin is that it's involved in mood. And that's why something like an SSRI is the quintessential antidepressant medication. And I know that there's links as well between neurogenesis and mm-hmm. mood and depression. So what what is neurogenesis? exactly and what is the link between potentially psychedelics and neurogenesis Mm -hmm. with the 5-hd2a receptor so neurogenesis is the process of when you have new neurons growing from neuronal stem cells in the brain and it was really not thought to be happening in the adult brain once your adult brain is there it's done you've got no new brain cells and several years ago they discovered that ssris actually cause the growth of new neurons in uh, specific brain regions like the hippocampus and that these new neurons led to new sprouting and new connections. And then that was associated with the antidepressant effects of SSRIs. And so that, that was a quite a impactful discovery and uh, several different groups over the last uh, few years have looked at um, neurogenesis and synaptic plasticity with psychedelics and have shown that if you stimulate the 5-HT2A receptor in the brain, that you will also stimulate uh, new synapses and new neuronal connections within the brain. And um, in some of the work that has been done with ketamine, which does very similar things, if you block those connections from happening, you can prevent the antidepressant effects in these animal models. So the, the current theory is really that that ketamine and psychedelics really have this sort of convergent mechanism through a particular cellular pathway to increase synaptic density and growth in specific brain regions that are producing this antidepressant effect. Gotcha. So the, the idea is 
you know, you have something like ketamine, which mechanistically it works very differently than something like right. psilocybin. And yet they both seem like they might have these antidepressant effects. This might be linked to neurogenesis. And so mm -hmm. is this, is this part of the thinking behind why you might be able to engineer new psychedelics that are, that are not actually psychedelic, <laughs> that there's a component to this that's involved in like mood modulation and depression and then, and then components that are involved in the other stuff. Right. Right. So, um, obviously if you have a new antidepressant and you've got your grandma who is very reluctant to take a psychedelic, mm -hmm. she's depressed. If you could come up with, with one that is not psychoactive, but would have the same sort of synaptic increasing uh, effects, then you could make it into say a, an ordinary medication that you could take that wouldn't be having these behavioral effects. Um, there is some evidence that that might be possible to engineer um, away those. Um, there are a few different labs who are working on that, but I think it's, I'm not sure that that's ever really going to be feasible because if you're changing the brain, you're inducing all the synaptic plasticity and doing what it needs to do that, um, that you're just going to, as a product of that rewiring, have these subjective mm -hmm. psychedelic effects. Yeah, that was that was something I was wondering about because on the one hand, it seems like there's a lot of people trying to engineer the psychedelic component out of psychedelics, which makes sense, right? If you can have a drug that doesn't have what a clinician would probably view as a side effect, you know, right, I, right. ideally, you know, you don't want to treat someone where there's a requirement for them to be under supervision for eight hours because they're going to have hallucinations. <laughs> exactly. On the other hand, if the same receptor system underlies some of the therapeutic benefits and the psychedelic effects, mm -hmm. it might not be possible to disassociate those things. The other thing I was wondering about is I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that in the work of Roland Griffiths um, and others, there actually is a, there is a quite a strong correlation at oh, least yeah. between the intensity of the subjective effects and the magnitude of the therapeutic outcome. Right. Right. And I think that that correlation is definitely very real that the more intense experience that somebody has, has gone through in one of the, the therapy sessions, the better the outcome, mm -hmm. but rather than look at it, that, the experience itself is antidepressant. I, I would potentially argue that the more somebody has this experience, that that's merely a biomarker that they've gotten enough drug in the brain that's going to induce the plasticity that's necessary for that antidepressant effect. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, um, you know, how, how can you test if the subjective peak experience or the intensity of the ex experience is necessary? Um, some people have proposed looking at anesthetized people, um, give them psilocybin and see if that's antidepressant. Um, nobody's done that yet. Uh, some issues with that, you know, that uh, a lot of the cells that are affected by anesthesia um, are also affected by psychedelics. And there's some evidence that anesthesia itself is antidepressant. Yeah. I mean, ketamine is an anesthetic. Is, is right. It but even like, a, like a, something like propofol, there's, mm -hmm. there's even a couple or uh, isoflurane, there's, there's some evidence that they might be antidepressants. So if you knock somebody out and give them psilocybin, got a are they there. antidepressed? So what we've done is uh, we've generated some animal models. Uh, we've looked at the uh, antidepressant effects of psilocybin in rats and have looked at a couple different models here. And we've shown that if we give a depressed rat, we can make a depressed rat or there's genetically uh, uh, 
uh, genetic models for major depression, treatment resistant depression in a rat. We give it a single injection of psilocybin in these models and then go six weeks out later. These rats are behaving like normal rats. They're hmm. not depressed. They don't have any of those depressive symptoms. If we do the same model with ketamine, the antidepressant effects of ketamine wear off after about two weeks. I see. So it's very similar to what is happening in, in the human population where a single treatment of ketamine lasts about two weeks mm -hmm. and psilocybin is, is persistent. So we would argue if a rat really has a sense of existential existence and angst and is it wondering about its, its own immortality and is that where a depression is coming from? Or if not, is, is it really biological? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we, we think that really at its core, the antidepressant effects of these classic psychedelics are really um, rooted in synaptic and neuronal changes within the brain due to the 5-HT2A receptor activation. Mm -hmm. And as this, these long lasting antidepressant effects, at least in animals, how dependent is that on dose? What, what is the comparable human dose that, that you're using for these rats? Is it, is it a very large one or? It's, we roughly calculated it to be around what they're using in the human, uh, the human trials for the, the effects that it's having on, on the rat. Uh, the dose that we've chosen is not such a large dose that it's incapacitated. It can't do anything. Mm -hmm. um, it's still what, able. What do they do when you get a, a rat psilocybin? What what do they do? It's it's kind of funny. They they kind of hang out in their cage. They have this behavior called ptosis, uh, which is serotonin receptor mediated. So their eyes are kind of half closed like this, <laughs> and they like to hang out at the back of the cage where the, the air vent is coming in and they'll just prop their chin up there kind of looking a little sleepy. So it's really easy to tell uh, which ones we've, we've given the drug to. And sometimes uh, another behavior is a shake. So they'll have like a wet dog shake, but we don't see that very often in the rats, more, more so in the mice. Okay. So it, it clearly has a behavioral effect. Oh yeah. yeah. And um, I guess one thing that's interesting too is how, you know, you always wonder about how the effects that you have in a human translate mm -hmm. to an animal and vice versa. And if you've got a lot of, a lot of these psychedelic effects mediated by receptors that are in places like the prefrontal cortex, as you mm -hmm. said, um, do in animals, do they have the same distribution of 5-HT2A receptors or, or do we think there might be effects that are a little more unique to humans just based on the size of our cortex and, and differences like yeah. that? I think I think both of those are 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 valid. That uh, anatomical studies looking at receptor localization in rodents versus human is very very similar distribution mm -hmm. in the same types of neurons. Um, there's a, actually there's a larger difference between mice and rats than rats and humans hmm. in how the 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 sort of responses to specific psychedelics are uh, in in rats. If uh, you give them uh, tryptamine, psilocybin, and ergoline, uh, just about all of the behavior is shown to be 2A receptor mediated. Um, if you give the same drugs to a mouse, about half of the behavior is 2A and the other half is from 1A. And you also have uh, metabolic effects to take into account that a mouse, it's used to eating garbage and metabolizing things really quickly, more so I think than a rat. So uh, LSD and psilocybin in a mouse are gone within, you know, the half-life is under 10 minutes. 
Oh, wow. So they're very rapidly metabolized away. Uh, whereas in a rat, they're hanging around for an hour, two hours. In a human, though, if, especially with LSD, yeah. you have a very long half-life. It's hanging around much longer. So it's activating the receptors much longer. And in humans, compared to mice and rats, we have this very large neocortex, mm -hmm. uh, comparatively large. And so we've got just a higher, a higher degree of um, higher uh, proportion of brain tissue for cognitive function than, than rodents do that's highly expressing these receptors where the drug just happens to act much longer. So I think mm -hmm. um, in humans, there are some unique properties about humans, uh, but I think we can study the fundamental network activity, molecular and, and pharmacological activities in, in rats fairly well. Um, mice, okay, um, there's, there's good genetic models in mice uh, like a knockout for the receptor. So we can mm -hmm. do some, some fancy things, but there's not any genetic tools in the rat yet. Gotcha. So in some ways, very, very uh, broadly speaking, rats are, <laughs> rats are almost closer to humans than, than mice, at least With in some aspects. With respect to psychedelics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's interesting. But we can um, study a lot in them. Oh, yeah, and yeah. to even uh, make it a further interesting story, uh, this is some uh, manuscript we're writing up now. I also do work with fruit flies. Mm. And we've validated and looked at antidepressant effects of, say, an SSRI in a fruit fly mm -hmm. and psilocybin. And we show that a single exposure of psilocybin to what we have appears sort of like a genetic model of what a depressed rat would look like in the same types of testing. That if we treat it or feed it psilocybin for a day and then test it a week later for antidepressant-like activity... Um, that these fruit flies are behaving normally mm -hmm. uh, as they have, as if they had been given an SSRI the whole time. Uh, if see. we just give an SSRI for one day, it doesn't have that same effect. So in the context of treating something like depression in humans, how, mm -hmm. how important do you think psychotherapy is in conjunction with a drug like this? Because on the one hand, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it is important. On the other mm -hmm. hand, when you, mm -hmm when you describe these animal studies, you're presumably not <laughs> giving the fruit flies therapy sessions and yet no. <laughs> you're getting antidepressant effects. Yeah. So, well, I do think that the, the post session integrative therapy is really, it's necessary to, to maximize the full therapeutic potential. Mm -hmm. And we have some, some of our animal model data that supports that. I think at its core that this, what the psilocybin or the psychedelics do is they open up this window of behavioral flexibility mm -hmm. um, in the days immediately following the psychedelic that allows somebody to go in and change the way they think, change their neural network from where they've been stuck for the last so many months or years to some new permanent state, which is, which is more healthy. And we, we see that in one of our rat models that we use that if we, give it psilocybin and we just let it hang out in its cage, we mm -hmm. have one effect. But if in the week after, within those days, the week after, we expose it to additional stressors or environments, mm -hmm. that it shapes the nature of the outcome of the antidepressant effect. I see. So, so even it's though, really critical. You, okay, so you give a rat psilocybin mm -hmm. and then the next day there's no psilocybin left, it's all gone. But right. what's going on in those days and weeks actually has a strong effect on how the animal's going to behave. Right, right, right. I think they're able to better adapt their behaviors from what we see into the environments that we put them in. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I think what we're doing is acutely the psilocybin is promoting this neurogenesis, this increase in synaptic plasticity, synaptic density of specific circuits um, that are inherently producing an antidepressant effect on their own, but they're also opening this window of plasticity over the next several days where they're able to really learn new skills, learn new coping skills, mm -hmm. learn new strategies, and integrate that into the normal behavior. Um, sort of, if you have somebody who's a, a person, they're depressed, they've got this rigid thinking, um, give them psilocybin therapy, okay, that in and of itself is going to help. But mm -hmm. then in the days after, take them back to where they were, uh, maybe they had some insights during the peak experience, do some integrative therapy with uh, their trauma that they've had, and you've gotten rid of the the rigid neural networks, and now they're able to readapt to what's going on into a more healthy state. I see. Hey, Charles, the um the mic, your wire, it's rubbing oh. against your shirt. Um, okay. So if you could just be just be mindful of that, and it's not too bad, but when you move your hands, it kind of shakes it around. Okay. Um. Okay, that's interesting. So the other thing that I think is super interesting, you mentioned that rats and mice metabolize these drugs differently than humans but then also within humans you've got you know on one side of the spectrum lsd which mm -hmm. is going to be you know eight or even longer hours where the effects are lasting and on the other side of the spectrum you've got something like dmt where you're talking about minutes right what what's going on there why is there such a wide range of effects both in terms of their duration and the intensity of the psychedelic effects yeah that's a good question um those are really two polar opposites on the spectrum. It's uh, a mixture of how the drug is interacting with the receptor versus the metabolism of the receptor. For a drug like DMT, it's a small molecule. It can hop on the receptor very quickly, hop mm -hmm. off the receptor, uh, but it's also metabolized by monoamine oxidases that are in the body within minutes. Um, so if somebody ingests DMT uh, orally, it won't be active because the monoamine oxidases uh, within the gastrointestinal system will essentially metabolize it before it gets absorbed. Um, if it's smoked or inhaled, it is immediately in on those getting into the blood and into the brain, but it's mm -hmm. metabolized very quickly away. With LSD, it's a very different story because um, uh, LSD, when it binds to the receptor, it changes the conformation of the receptor to where there's this loop on uh, two of the uh, helical membranes uh, spanning helices that fold down in over and trap LSD in the receptor so it can't get back out. I see. And so then you get LSD is stuck in the receptor and it's there signaling, doing its thing and changing the neuron for eight or 12 hours. So that's why, that's why it's eight to 12 hours. It literally yeah. is trapped at that receptor. Right, right. This was, um, this was a paper... Uh, the last, just a few months ago from Brian Roth's group, I think my father was also a, a co-author on that paper where they had the crystal structure of the 2A receptor and they showed that with LSD in there, it's just, it's trapped, can't get out. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. I'm talking to Brian Roth in January, so I'll, I'll ask him about oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. What, um, how did you even, how did you get into this? Oh, how did you get into science and then, and then this area specifically? Oh, wow. Yeah. So. It's not what most people would think how I got into this area. So I, I, uh, uh, my, my father got his PhD in medicinal chemistry at University of Iowa. 
Um, when I was a little kid, four or five years old, he would take me into the lab and the chemistry stuff like that. Oh, that's neat. Um, didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, took chemistry class in high school. Uh, thought that was interesting. But uh, your dad, mother, it, your dad wasn't just a chemist, right? Your dad is no, no, the LSD guy, basically. Yeah, but he didn't tell me <laughs> what he did for his day job when I was growing up. Okay, okay. <laughs> he'd make up some stories about, oh yeah, I'm you know doing this and that. I'm a chemist, and uh, he was at one point said he was trying to figure out how you know the molecules that make people dream. I remember was one of the cover stories that he used mm. on me when I was about ten. Okay, uh, so I really had no idea what he was doing. This was pre-internet. Uh, yeah, yeah. I knew he was a chemist. I knew he was a pharmacologist. My mother was getting her PhD in pharmacology at the same time at, at Purdue. Um, so the around the dinner table conversations, you know, tended to go around, you know, pharmacology, drugs, receptors, experiments. Uh, but, you know, it's your parents talking. You don't really pay mm -hmm. too much attention. Uh, but I, I went to college. Um, I wanted to be a chemist, not quite sure why I wanted to be a chemist because maybe that's why my dad was a chemist. And uh, after a couple of years, I decided I didn't like chemistry. Hmm. Um, so I switched to biology and started doing undergraduate research in a laboratory doing bacterial genetics. And this was, I think we had just gotten the first PCR machine on campus and that was <laughs> a lot of fun. And uh, so I really, really liked biology and, and genetics. Uh, um, didn't really know what I wanted to do for graduate school. So I, I went to a lot of interdisciplinary graduate programs and I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon uh, for uh, my PhD work. And it was really a, a focused department on developmental genetics. And I ended up working in the laboratory of Dr. John Pollock, who uh, was doing fruit fly eye research. And I remember uh, seeing his first presentation, these beautiful, almost psychedelic uh, pictures of these neural networks and fly brains and the fly eye the different colors and wow that's what i want to do <laughs> uh, so i joined his lab and spent the next several years uh learning about fruit fly eyes and retina development um and after several years of just doing a lot of really hardcore genetics developmental biology i was like okay i'm done with flies <laughs> uh and by this time, I knew what my father did for his for his day job. Yeah, yeah. That, that that came out a little bit later. You know, so in, in my late teens, um, and and I knew what he did when I went off to graduate school, but it didn't really interest me. Serotonin, okay. Pharmacology, okay. But I was really fascinated by genetics, and mm -hmm. that's the direction I went. So I wanted to get out of fruit flies and genetics, and I thought of going to something like a mammalian system, um, and just through uh, a random set of circumstances, happened to find myself looking at an advertisement on the back of a journal for a hire for the Vanderbilt Neuroscience Program. And there was an investigator on there, Elaine Sanders Bush, who had, was working on serotonin. And I had heard, my, I remember my father mentioned her a couple of times, they were collaborating and I thought, huh, serotonin, that could be something different. So I sent her my, application i sent her an email and almost immediately she got back and she said i don't know i don't know i know no i don't have a position um i don't know why my name was on there i don't have any money for it i'm sorry um okay that was it so then i i uh, i was looking at other postdocs and uh one in a parkinson's laboratory so i thought all right i'll, I'll do dopamine and parkinson's it's different than flies and 
then it was about two two months later. I you know completely forgot about the whole Vanderbilt thing, and I got an email from uh, Elaine who said, "Oh, by the way, I've got some money now. If you're mm-hmm. still interested in that postdoc, could you come interview next week?" Okay. Um, so I sent, uh, send me your CV and everything. So she had remembered this email from somebody doing fruit fly stuff uh, a couple months later, um, went down to Vanderbilt, um, thought it was a really fantastic environment down there in Nashville. And the lab was great. The people were great. And she said, the project I have in mind for you is to use this new technology called differential display PCR to look at what effect LSD is having on gene expression in a rat brain. Go, oh, that sounds fun. Um, I could do that. Uh, so I accepted the position, uh, moved down to Nashville, and started working on that project in 1997. Um, and I think I had been in the lab uh, a month, a month or two, not not more than than a month or two. And she, I remember very vividly, she came out of her office, kind of with a look on her face, and she she was. Um, uh, Elaine was a, uh, a real firecracker. She's from central Kentucky, probably five feet tall on a good day and real, you know, full of energy. She comes out, I was looking at your CV again. And, um, I saw that I noticed that you went to Purdue and I, Nichols, do you know Dave Nichols up there? <laughs> uh, I said, yeah, that's my dad. And she just started laughing and laughing and laughing. Um, so at, at that point, um, you know, she started calling me Dave after that. So instead of Chuck, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that really, um, it really caught my passion working with serotonin and neuropharmacology and serotonin two a receptors. And at that point I knew, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And as, as much as I wanted to get away from fruit flies, I also got back into fruit flies when I realized that I could give drugs to fruit flies. <laughs> And, and use that as a model system. Uh, so I had, had a really uh, fun and productive postdoc there. So I got into the field, not because my father was in the field. I wanted to do something different. Yeah, yeah. But it just sort of randomly randomly found my way. But once once I found my way, I knew it was home. Okay. That's interesting. And then, you know, I think at some point, a lot of what you do is related to inflammation. Yes. So how did you get into that? And what, what are the dots that, that you connect between serotonin, psychedelics, 5-HD2A, and inflammation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is, uh, people think psychedelics, they think the brain. Yeah. They yeah. think serotonin 2A, it's in the brain. Um, and what I, that's what I was thinking. And what I came to learn is that the serotonin 2A receptor is the most highly expressed serotonin receptor in the whole body. Hmm. It's in every, literally every tissue in your body. Uh, bone, skin, eyes, lungs, kidneys—it's it's everywhere. Um, and it really, again, this was serendipity that we discovered this. Uh, and if it had not had been for Hurricane Katrina, I don't think this would have been discovered. Um, what do you uh, mean? Because uh, after Katrina down here, we lost about half half of the uh, faculty of the medical school, and. Um, I was just because they moved away or they moved away, recruited away, didn't yep. want to live, keep living in new Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, I had come back down after a seven month evacuation, uh, living up in my dad's the room over his garage for seven months. 
uh, came back down, reestablishing my laboratory, um, was getting in the, uh, ready to hire a postdoc uh, for the laboratory, and uh, was contacted just out of the blue by this fellow who was across the street in the pathology department, uh, Bang Ning Yu, who his, his uh, mentor was leaving New Orleans to go to another university, and he wanted to stay. His, his uh, wife was in nursing school, um, and he had done some research with 5-HT2A receptors at the clinical level. He was an MD-PhD, and when he was in China getting his MD-PhD and came across, he was just looking through names, and, oh, I, I did serotonin 2A. Um, it just so happened that that day I had permission to start hiring a postdoc. He showed up in my office really as a cold call um, looking for a postdoc, and sure, yeah, you're hired. <laughs> But his, his specialty was in um, blood, high blood pressure, and it was working on models of atherosclerosis and vascular inflammation. Uh, so uh, he came in the laboratory, and I was trying to reposition him to do cellular biology because we were trying to find an assay so we wouldn't have to always take the brains out of the animals um, to study them. So we were looking at several different types of cellular outputs. We were looking at cell growth, cell division, cell death, um, and Bang Ning proposed, let's look at this particular assay uh, in uh, aortic cells, which he had been doing uh, in his laboratory across the street. And this was an assay using uh, smooth muscle cells from the aorta of rats. Gotcha. So uh, this is the heart. The heart. And normally these cells are prohibitively expensive. Uh, mm -hmm. You order them, it's like $1,000, and you get a little, little tiny amount. And so he said, well, let's, let's look at it for, put it in this assay for inflammation. And I was thinking, inflammation? Okay, okay. But he had the expertise. He knew what he was doing. Um, also happened to have the fortune at that time um, uh, that my, my daughter's mother was working in a cell culture uh, facility where she was making the cells that we would need. So we had unlimited access to this otherwise prohibitively expensive cell type. The expertise to do this inflammatory assay that wouldn't have been there if it hadn't been for Katrina. Mm -hmm. And he did the assay where we grow these heart cells, add this um, inflammatory agent, and then look at inflammation in these heart cells. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, there was a super, super potent effect that we saw with our first drug that we looked at called DOI. What, what is that? What is DOI? DOI is 2,5-dimethoxy-4-iodoamphetamine. So if you, it's a, it's a similar to the mescaline. It's the same class of uh, like a, a, a psychedelic amphetamine. Okay. So it's not like a tryptamine or LSD, but it's, it's more like mescaline in its I structure. See. And uh, Shulgin had written a whole book on this called um, PCAL, phenethylamines mm -hmm. I have known and loved. And th this is one of those. This is, uh, and D so DOI is in there, but so it had it had a potent anti-inflammatory effect. Anti-inflammatory effect. We didn't know what we would see, um, and it turns out that when we characterized everything, that this particular drug was about a hundredfold more potent as an anti-inflammatory at its target than, say, dexamethasone or or a steroid. Just a standard, target. you know, what a doctor would give someone. Normally right. for inflammation, it's a hundred times more potent. You said, yes. Wow. Exactly. So at this point it was, wow, we really could be onto something here because at the levels and the potency of 
of this drug as an anti-inflammatory, it would be, you know, 50 to 100 times less of what would give somebody any kind of psychoactive effects. Um, gotcha. Literally like, like a microdose. A microdose, yeah. Right, right. So it's so potent as an anti-inflammatory, you can give a tiny dose, you won't have any psychedelic or psychoactive effects, but you will have this impact on inflammation. Right, and that's what we saw with, with our animal models. Um, so we, we did uh, animal models of inflammatory bowel, of um, asthma, of um, atherosclerosis, diabetes. So we saw really, really profound therapeutic effects in, in all of these animal models. The one we've used the most though is asthma. I see. Yeah. I, I read about that and I was, I was fascinated when I saw it because A, it's, it's this, the only example I know of where you have what you can call a microdose, you know, mm -hmm. a sub psychoactive dose that's actually doing something measurable in an animal model at least. Mm -hmm. And and, and the second thing was, you know, I think everyone thinks about psychedelics as, you know, acting on neurons in the brain and right. doing stuff in the brain. But as you said, these receptors are all over the place doing stuff pretty much everywhere. And it was, it was just really interesting to see. Can you describe, how do you do the, how do you study asthma in a rat? What does that experiment look like? Uh, so what we do is we, we have a model of allergic asthma. Mm -hmm. So it's like pollen, dust allergy. That's the most common kind of asthma. So what we do is we take chicken egg white protein, um, chicken egg white ovalbumin. Mm -hmm. um, we inject it into the rat um, twice, and that primes the immune system to respond with an allergy to this antigen. So mm -hmm. it'd be like injecting yourself with pollen from ragweed or something to make yourself allergic to it. Yeah. And then we, we nebulize and, and give by nebulization the same chicken egg over albumin. What does that mean? Nebulization. Oh, like an inhaler. Inhaler. Okay. So they're inhaling like a, it. Like an inhaling it. And it okay. goes into the lungs and then it produces this allergic response. And so after, after three days, you have basically an asthmatic rat. You have inflammation, you have mucus, you have difficulty breathing. Mm -hmm. um, the types of immune cells and response that are in the lung are, are conserved very highly with with humans who have allergic asthma. Mm -hmm. And is that what asthma is? Basically the lungs and the airway become physically inflamed? Physically inflamed. You get inflammation um, of the smooth muscle cells, of the endothelial cells, um, and then you get cells that come to the lung around the airways that also are inflammatory. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really this pathological state. And then that induces remodeling of the lungs. It induces the formation of collagen and fibers and makes them stiffer. Uh, so overall, the pathology is very similar to somebody who is really having a difficulty time breathing with asthma. I see. So if you have asthma, every time that you have an asthma attack, you actually get worse. Like your lung right. is worse after that. Right. Well, it can, it can be. It can be. And with, with our models, um, we use a, a particular drug to trigger the asthma attack after they inhale it and they, they develop a uh, the symptoms, we give them a drug that, that in normal, a normal person that's used mm -hmm. in people as well, the same, um, that will cause just a slight narrowing of the bronchioles in the lung, uh, methacholine. It's a drug, uh, uh, muscarinic agonist mm -hmm. that in normal people, it might make it like a little bit more difficult breathing, but if you have asthma and mm -hmm. inflammation in your lungs, it's, it's really, really going to make it difficult, difficulty breathing. And that's what's called airways, hyper responsiveness. And, 
uh, they can do that with a the person. They put a person in a chamber, they expose it to the same thing, and they measure the response to this, and they can tell you know how severe your asthma is. So we do that with the rats as well. Gotcha. And when we treat with the drug, if we give the drug as an inhaler, mm-hmm. essentially, to nebulize and, and give them the drug that way, we can both prevent the development of the asthma when we give them the allergen, and we can rescue the symptoms of asthma um, back to normal once they've already developed those symptoms. So completely, it completely asthma. prevents it. Completely. Wow. So, so you, you, you literally give them asthma, they inhale something, their airways become inflamed. But before doing that, if you give them this mescaline like mm-hmm. drug, that's very potent and they inhale just a little bit and they don't yeah. even have behavioral effects, that's enough to completely prevent them from having an asthmatic attack. Yes. Wow. Or if they're already having an asthmatic attack, it's not like a rescue inhaler, but mm-hmm. they have all the inflammation there and we give them the drug within a, a couple of days after that, we take the lungs out and look at them. There's no inflammation in the lung. There's no mucus. And uh, we, when we test their breathing ability, it's absolutely normal. Gotcha. And so is we, that, wow. And is that a 5-HD2A receptor thing? Yes, it is. Okay. We recently had a publication a couple months ago where we looked about, I think we looked at 25 different psychedelics to see how potent they were at doing that. And the drugs like DOI and some other ones, uh, 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 psilocybin also was very potent at producing this anti-asthma effects. And when we looked in a, a knockout animal, we have a mouse that doesn't have the 2A receptor. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no effect. Gotcha. So you can take just a small dose of a psychedelic that stimulates the 5-HD2A receptor mm-hmm. and have this really strong effect, basically a cure for asthma, at least this form of asthma, it depends mm-hmm. on 5-HD2A. It's the same receptor in humans. So yeah. is this likely to also work in humans, you think? I, I think it will. Um, some of the cell culture data that we have is using human cells. Um, so we're, uh, 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 my research is partnered with a biotech company called Elusis that's mm-hmm. Uh, taking some of these drugs and the IP that we've generated to develop them towards ultimately using in humans, uh, going towards human clinical trials. And is the idea there that you would essentially give someone a microdose, a very small dose of one of these drugs, rather than trying to engineer a new drug that is structurally different? Initially, yes. But we were also engineering new drugs. And one of the things that we did in our asthma model is we showed that the behavioral potency does not correlate with anti-asthma activity at all. Um, like LSD, which is really super potent as a, as a psychedelic, mm-hmm. at best is only weakly anti-inflammatory. And I see. And is, this, put, is this like that functional selectivity thing yes. you were talking about before? Yes. So it can be potent at one receptor in one way, and a different drug can be more potent at the same receptor in a completely different effect because it's, right. it's interacting with that receptor in a different way. Right. Wow. Like with DMT, for example, there's absolutely no anti-inflammatory effects. Interesting. And that's also potent. So we, we did a correlative analysis between 25 psychedelics, their behavioral potency, um, and their ability to, to uh, prevent asthma, and there's, there's absolutely no correlation. So we think, unlike with, say, the psychiatric side, that we'll be able to engineer drugs that have less psychoactivity 
potentially even no psychoactivity, but mm-hmm. full anti-inflammatory, depending upon how it activates that receptor. And we've made some progress on that. We have some new chemicals now that have reduced behavior. They have, a, a I think, two-thirds less behavior induced than DOI, but they still are fully anti-inflammatory. Wow. That's amazing. What, um, what, what do you think about the phenomenon of microdosing generally? Because, I mean, you're hearing, I hear about it all the time now. It's, it's really yeah. a cultural fad at this point. And on the one hand, you know, the work that you just described says that there could be something to it, that you could have real physiological effects mm-hmm. that might even be beneficial at a dose that's well below what would give you full-blown psychoactive effects. On the other hand, it sometimes feels like it's almost flirting with homeopathy or something where people are trying <laughs> yeah. to compete to say, you know, I, I, how little they take. Do you, do you think that there's something there um, to microdosing beyond the inflammatory stuff that you just described? There could be. Um, the, the, one of the issues with that is there have been so few really good controlled studies mm-hmm. looking at the effects of microdosing. I think there have been uh, maybe only two or three over the last year or so. Um, one um, from uh, the group I've been involved in looking at healthy um, elderly volunteers, uh, essentially microdosing over several weeks and then running them through the full cognitive testing battery and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And Microdosing what? LSD. LSD, okay. Doing 5, 10, and 20 micrograms of LSD every third or fourth day over several weeks. And is that, that's roughly like 10 times less than a recreational right, dose? Right. The threshold, the threshold dose of LSD for, say, an experienced psychonaut would be about 20 micrograms. 20, somebody, okay. Somebody who's not used to, used to altered states might be up to 25 or 30. So mm-hmm. it's below the threshold, but a, a typical recreational dose is considered 100 micrograms. Okay. So it's about tenfold less. And... Um, we showed that there was no, there were no negative effects on any cognitive measures or outcome, um, mm-hmm. with those tests. But on the flip side, we showed that there were, there was no enhancement of any of these cognitive tests. I see. Um, and there have been a couple other studies looking at similar doses of LSD with a few signal maybe here or there, but there's no real, real, overwhelming evidence that microdosing LSD is doing anything to cognitive function or creativity um, based on the few studies that are there. But, you know, maybe we're just looking under the wrong streetlight. Some different types of studies need to be done because there was um, one study looked at some functional imaging of fMRI uh, of the brains after I think it was 15 or 16 micrograms of LSD or 13 and showed that there were, were measurable effects on network connectivity at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, how that would translate into behavior and, and cognition, I don't know. But I, I, think it, I, I think it's certainly worth following up with, with more testing, mm-hmm. more, more controlled studies. Interesting. So it's still largely anecdotal, but, but there mm-hmm. could be something there. We, we at least know from, from the work that you're describing that small amounts of some of these drugs can have real actually very strong physiological effects. Right. Right. Interesting. What about, of- what about the link between um, inflammation in the brain and things like depression? I think when you describe something like asthma and I'm imagining the airway becoming mm-hmm. physically inflamed, that's really easy to visualize, but there's also this idea of neuroinflammation in the brain, right? What, right. Right. Like, what is that? 
So neuroinflammation in the brain, uh, that's when uh, the brain doesn't really have an immune system, mm -hmm. but it has, it has similar types of cells called microglia that are in the brain that, that perform a lot of similar functions, say that, that macrophages will in your body. So there is a kind of primitive immune system in the brain where there are inflammatory molecules um, and cells that will um, essentially treat the inflammation in the brain if it's there. And uh, they found, I think it was a number of years ago, that people who are depressed, it's not, it's not everybody who has major depression, but there's a, a very large subset of people with major depression. Uh, when they've done biopsies of the brain and looked at biomarkers, um, they've seen signs of inflammation, a particular inflammatory cytokines are increased, the number of actively activated microglia are increased, um, and they see similar neuroinflammation associated then with uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's disease, schizophrenia, unmedicated schizophrenics have a significant amount of neuroinflammation. Hmm. Uh, so as maybe... 10 years or so ago, this whole neuroimmune hypothesis of, of psychiatric disorders uh, was proposed. And that's become a really, really hot field of looking at inflammation and how it really kind of underlies a lot of, a lot of psychiatric disorders. And there's inflammation um, in the brain associated with drug abuse as well, depression, um, uh, pretty much every, everything nowadays seems to involve some aspect of, of inflammation. Mm -hmm. uh, Interesting. So what, um, what other, what other areas, if any, are you working on in your lab? Are you work, what compounds are you working on? Is it all focused on inflammation or are there other, other avenues? No, um, I've, I've got sort of three and a half major areas in my lab. Uh, one of them is the inflammation and it's primarily focused on trying to identify what is going on in the cell that's producing this anti-inflammatory response. We know what kinds of drugs that we can activate the receptor with to cause um, either anti-inflammatory response or no response. We have, we have potent psychedelics that are not anti-inflammatories mm -hmm. uh, that we've, we've identified. And we have potent psychedelics that are. So we're leveraging these kinds of tools in cell biology studies to see how they're affecting the cell differently to identify what are the molecular mechanisms. And then if we know that, we can potentially make better molecules that only activate these particular mechanisms. And another project in the laboratory is directly looking at how these different drugs are interacting with the receptor, how they're modifying the receptor to recruit different pathways. Uh, so it's more of a, a cell culture based receptor drug interaction project um, that complements what we're doing in the whole animals and the cell biology for the, the asthma and the inflammation. And then there's another uh, main effort in the lab uh, with models of depression using psilocybin and other two-way agonists to see if we can get at how these psychedelics are affecting the brain at the molecular level to produce these persistent antidepressant effects and how that's different than ketamine. Mm -hmm. Because ketamine and and psychedelics, they're both believed to activate the same molecular pathways involving mTOR and synaptogenesis. But why do psychedelics last, in some cases in humans, years? The study mm -hmm. came out like four and a half years later, 70 to 80% of, of the, the depressed individuals from the NYU study were, still hadn't relapsed into depression. Um, that was out of wow. Steve Ross's group. 
But ketamine, one infusion treatment, it's gone after a couple of weeks. You have to do multiple infusions over, over two weeks. And then that might last a few months, but then you have to retreat. So they have the same mechanism at the, at the, the glutamate synaptic level, but why do psychedelics last so much longer? And we think that has to do with epigenetics mm-hmm. and um, some effects within, within, within the brain circuitry. And so we're looking at those kinds of things now within that model, um, further developing that model. And then the half, the three and a half, the half is we're, we're also still doing some work with the fruit flies because now that we, we can see some interesting things with the fruit flies and psilocybin, we can very quickly and rapidly get at really fundamental molecular mechanisms using the fruit fly genetics and the tools that are already, already available there. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the, really the three main areas, but we are making new, new chemicals. We've, we've got a series of new chemicals uh, that have a somewhat reduced behavior but maintain anti-inflammatory. And we're working now on the, the third generation. And these are the ones that Eleusis is, has licensed and is um, trying to develop for the clinic. And that's um, uh, part of the team down here at LSU is my collaborator, uh, Tim Foster, who's up in the microbiology department. And he made an astounding discovery that psychedelics um, can really potently protect against a lot of the inflammation and damage produced by ocular viral infections. And so he's, he's been doing a lot of really interesting work looking at the anti-inflammatory effects of psychedelics in, in the eye as a model system. Wow. Is it, um, I mean, most of these compounds, psilocybin, various others, are Schedule 1. So mm-hmm. how hard is it for you to actually do this research? Um, for me, I don't think it was as hard as it is for most. When mm-hmm. I started uh, my own lab up back in 2004, because I had come from the Sanders Bush lab, who was already known for, I think she was one of the probably five or six labs working on psychedelics in the world at that time. Um, uh, and on my application to DEA for all the permits and everything, I'll, here's my pedigree. I come from this lab. I'm moving it forward. So I think... I had a little bit easier time than somebody who just wants to break into it, but still it was six months to process everything. I had site inspections um, from the, the agents of the state and the federal. Mm-hmm. Um, what do they actually look for when the DEA comes in to inspect <laughs> your lab? What are they looking for? Um, they're looking for the log books, the use, um, want to see the vial, uh, so every, every time, every experiment, you have to write down exactly how oh, yes. much was taken and, and go to that yeah, level. Down to the, the point, point 0.1 milligram level. Um, everything is accounted for, inventoried, um, and everything is kept in this giant safe. Uh, and I also, um, they, they had to come out and look at that. It's this 500-pound triple locking. Mm-hmm. It's a beast. But uh, when my father retired back in 2012, um, I inherited his uh, Schedule One collection. Ah, should I put it that way? So he he signed over all all through the DEA, and we did the everything um, appropriately. Uh, uh, his uh, library of uh, uh, I think it was about a little over between twelve and fifteen different Schedule Ones of different classes. Um, that enabled us to really start beginning to look at some of the structural differences in um, a lot of these drugs. Uh, okay. 
So basically, you have to take really detailed notes. People come in from the DEA to inspect the lab. And it took you about six months to get approved. What Mm -hmm. would, if someone wanted to go in blind and just come in from a different field, how long do you think it would take to get approved? Oh, it really depends. Um, We had the, the, the first ever International Society for the Research on Psychedelics meeting here in New Orleans last fall. Um, so we had all, you know, a meeting for scientists, by scientists. We had the mm-hmm. Hopkins team here, um, people from UCSF, uh, uh, all around the world, uh, from the UK, from Brazil. But also included in that were uh, speakers from the DEA hmm. and from the FDA, uh, who were all um, telling us that Yes, if you can show these drugs are safe and effective, we will work with you to bring mm-hmm. these drugs to market as medicines. And the presentation from the DEA actually addressed this topic, how long it takes to get a license and how to really mm-hmm. get into the field and do that. It's been going down um, year over year, so they're fairly effective now processing it, probably maybe three to four months. Okay. DEA certainly is willing to work with people now um, to help them get the licenses and, and the paperwork done that they need to really do this type of research. I see. And is that because today they recognize that there's enough evidence that th- there's really serious work to be done, whereas maybe in decades past, if you put in an application, they would just say, what is this? What does this guy want to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think there's, there's recognition now at, at that official level that there is potential medical use and the research needs to be done in order to determine if that's true or not. Mm-hmm. So to do that, we will facilitate, you know, getting the proper licenses and paperwork done to enable you to do your research. So mm-hmm. they're really working with the investigators now rather than being sort of a, a stop. No, what do you think you're doing? Mm-hmm. So that that's been a real kind of fundamental change in the research culture of the last say five years. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. I mean, what, um, as a scientist and as a citizen, what do you think the appropriate legal status for these compounds is? That's a difficult question. Like lower um, scheduled, I, descheduled, legalized? I think across the board, legalization is, is not the way to go um, at this point. Um, I think um, rescheduling them into a proper category for a medicine where they can be used as a treatment, I think would be uh, probably ideal. What would that um, be? I, which, which scheduling level? I, I don't know. I know, I know Matt Johnson has written about descheduling to schedule four, mm-hmm. um, something like that. Uh, unlike something like marijuana, which um, has become recreational across most of the country. And in, for example, in Oregon, where they've decriminalized uh, and, and almost legalized, if, if not legalized, psychedelics. Um, I think that what, uh, what a lot of people don't realize with psychedelics is there is the potential for more harm. Um, if you have, these are really powerful, powerful medicines. And if, if, the wrong person, say they had a history of psychosis in the, in the mm-hmm. family, or they had a psychosis disorder or bipolar, and 
got caught up with uh, somebody who didn't know what they were doing, there's really the potential of not healing somebody, but harming somebody. Mm -hmm. And so I think there has to be really a regulatory framework around how the use of these psychedelics should be moving forward in, in the aspects of therapy. Yeah. Therapeutic uh, arena. You often, or at least I've often heard that, you know, when people talk about the risks for psychedelics, the one that's maybe the most common that I've heard is that they can potentially trigger psychotic episodes in people that are already predisposed to that. Is that, is there hard evidence for that? And what is, um, what, what would you say the risk is there? I think it's, it's fairly accepted by everyone in the field that there is a risk of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's documented literature, um, you know, case report of psychosis after pick the drug um, in PubMed. So it, it does happen. And I think the, the incidence of it is less than 1%, mm-hmm. but it's real. It's there. Um, it seems that to a person, everybody who has developed these persistent psychotic-like disorders after a psychedelic, and it doesn't matter, it could be the first time, it could be the 50th time, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. But if they do develop these persistent psychotic-like disorders, and that's different than HPPD, which are just sort of those persistent visuals. But which, persistent, what's, what's HPPD? Oh, uh, hallucinatory post-perception disorder. <laughs> so uh, maybe maybe just what it sounds like? That's a little different. So it's, that's a case where people will take a psychedelic and they will get persistent sort of visual perturbations, sparkles or things like that that don't go away. It's kind of like tinnitus. For uh, weeks, months, or, or forever? Uh, weeks, months, long-term. Oh, yeah. wow. And it's kind of like, you know, you, tinnitus is the ringing in your ear. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, but it'd be sort of like visual tinnitus is sort of how I would <laughs> envision it. Wow. And the treatment for it is essentially SSRIs, so people aren't as bothered by it. I huh, think. that's interesting. So SSRIs, that kind of makes sense because there's more serotonin. It's going to compete with a psychedelic for access to a receptor, yeah. I guess. People in the recreational world tend to, that's the belief that I hear from people that have apparently tried it, where if you're on an SSRI, it actually weakens the effects of a psychedelic. It, it, it varies from person to person. I think... Um, with some people it does, with some people it doesn't. There's no sort of steadfast gotcha. rule. I think that there's a potential that it that it can, um, and it depends on what the SSRI is. And it, I think the uh, there's an individual variation of the expression of serotonin two A receptors uh, that varies a lot between individuals. And so the response to a psychedelic, I think, is really more how many receptors do you have in your brain compared to the next guy over? I see. So, so genetically people can differ in terms of how much of the receptors there and what the exact structure of that receptor is. Right. Like in the uh, psilocybin studies, sometimes they'll, you know, maybe you only need 20 milligrams of, of psilocybin to get somebody to that peak experience, whereas somebody else might need 50 milligrams. Yeah. And it's not really dependent upon body weight. It's mm-hmm. dependent upon how much receptors you have and what the occupancy needs to be. So it's, it's really complex when you're thinking about sort of SSRIs and, and psychedelics. And it, it, there's a lot of factors that go into it. So it's, wow. there's, no, there's no real sort of negative or toxic interaction. Gotcha. And, and is that also true, the toxicity thing that psychedelics, you know, if, if you have a, a purified compound that they have no clear evidence of toxicity in the brain or, or elsewhere, is that true? For most. So for 
the classic psychedelics like LSD, mescaline, DMT, 5-ethoxy-DMT, even really at very, very high doses from animal studies, human studies, there's no evidence that I'm aware of that it's doing anything dangerous or damaging in the brain. In mm. some of my earlier studies, I was giving rats whopping doses of LSD, whopping doses of LSD and analyzing the gene expression in the brain. And I didn't see a single marker of toxicity or damage. And the only thing that I was seeing was upregulation of genes involved in synaptic density increases. Um, that I think where, where the issues come in are with some of these research chemicals that, that haven't been tested that can produce some sort of toxicity, uh, like the, the N-bomb series of drugs that were popular in the recreational scene a few years ago when they came out as the tox, super toxic LSD. Hmm. Uh, we had somebody here in New Orleans die of Voodoo Fest, and it was all over the news. Oh, this super toxic N-bomb they took. Uh, so the synthetics that, that are related but different than... Right. The I think there was, there was a little bit of par- polypharmacology involved in a lot of these, but... Um, I had actually done some work with uh, uh, some of these N-bomb drugs a long time ago, over 10 years ago. And uh, when I was giving a lot of them to my fruit flies, this particular series of drug was killing my fruit flies. Hmm. And it's the first time I've ever seen a psychedelic kill a fruit fly, like in over, overnight. Wow. And then I did some investigations in the cells. And so there, this particular class of drug used recreationally does have some kind of toxicity associated with it, but we don't know what that toxicity is. Okay. But the classical psychedelics, even at very high doses, there's no clear evidence that they cause any physical damage. Not any physical damage. No, not that I'm aware of. Wow. Have you ever, I mean, if you studied these for a long time, have you ever wanted to try or have you ever tried any of these compounds? Um, um, I had fun in college. <laughs> <laughs> As, as most people do, but, uh, but that was not, that, that wasn't actually like a triggering event for you going into this field. No, no, no. Interesting. Although it was for my postdoctoral mentor. Okay. Dr. Sanders Bush. And she always told the story. She taught this psychotropic drug story and why she got into the field that she had volunteered for an LSD study back in the 1960s. Oh, wow. And before it was schedule one. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was like 67 or 68, and it was at Vanderbilt. And the way that, that she told the class is she remembers it was in a room, um, a pool table, there was a record player, and uh, maybe maybe 10 people or something like that. And they all gave him a pretty big dose of LSD and put them all in this room <laughs> and just watched them like these two-way mirrors. <laughs> and, and she said she remembers some people playing pool and this one guy was freaking out. And, and for her, she had a really, really unpleasant experience. Very, very unpleasant. Mm. Um, she said, would not want to do it again. Um, you know, set and setting is critical and it doesn't seem like it was a really good set or setting to just mm. put a bunch of people on, on acid in a room and watch them through a two way mirror. Wow. But Did was, she ever try it again or was that never. the experience and so she, she didn't like it, but she wanted to go study it. After that, she said that, you know, it was just so amazing how such a, a minuscule amount of drug, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 100 micrograms could have such a profound influence on your cognition and your, your perception. And it was so fascinating to her that 
that's what got her studying serotonin receptors. And she was one of the real early pioneers in serotonin receptors and psychedelic drug research back in the 70s and 80s. Um, but that's what got her on that path was that that just one time and hmm. it was a bad experience, but she recognized the, the potential there. And wow, that's interesting. I, uh, I remember seeing a video of your dad on YouTube or somewhere and uh, you know, it's in his lab at Purdue, I think. Uh -huh. And someone asked him basically that question, have you ever tried this? And he just sort of laughed and smiled and said, well, I came of age in the sixties. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and he said, uh, he's like, I'm pretty confident that, that we, we make the, the purest LSD in my lab here anywhere on the planet. Yeah, I think so. So that's interesting. I yeah, so he's he's still making some chemicals for me. Okay, um, we're we're collaborating, and we've come up with some some new ideas uh, in my lab uh, for some of these anti-inflammatories, and back and forth with him, and he comes up with the the structure, and so we were working on a couple more that he's he's gonna try to make back in and uh, so are before these, are he these, really retires. I see. So he's synthesizing brand new compounds yes, that he's designing. Yes. Wow, that I've designed. Oh, that you designed. Nice. Yeah. Well, well, and kind of together. So he, when he retired, uh, my brother lives in North Carolina mm -hmm. and his wife's daughter lives in North Carolina. And so he's got grandchildren there. So they decided to move to Chapel Hill, which is far enough away that they couldn't drop the kids off, you know, at a, at a half hour, 10 minutes notice. Mm -hmm. And when they moved down there, Brian Roth, like, huh, here's an opportunity so offered my father a retirement as a professor emeritus at UNC Chapel Hill, gave him lab space in his lab. So my father was just going into a lab and helping and doing chemical synthesis. And he synthesized, uh, I think, the, the compounds that Brian was using and the crystallography structures to get the crystal structure of, LS, of LSD in the receptor. Um, wow. So he's uh, also working with me right now um, to come up with the synthesis routes of, of some new drugs that we've come up with that now we're working with a, a, a CRO to actually just do the chemistry for us now, but he, he's, he's still active in, in drug design. Cool. Yeah. You guys wrote, um, you wrote a paper together that I read recently called DMT in the mammalian brain, a yeah. critical appraisal. And you basically go through some recent studies and, and he's got another paper, your dad, um, about separating facts and myths about DMT. Mm -hmm. And I read those and they were, they were really good. People ask me about DMT all the time in my personal life and elsewhere. Um, it's really fascinating for those that don't know. It's, can you describe what DMT, what people say DMT is like? And then I would like to maybe talk about what the pharmacology is there and do, do some of that myth busting work with mm -hmm. you. There's two ways that you can take DMT. One of them is in the, the brew ayahuasca, mm -hmm. which is part of the, uh, the uh, religious indigenous ceremonies of Peru and, and the Amazon. Uh, and that is an oral formulation that normally somebody would drink. And then there's a bout of nausea and vomiting followed by several hours of a psychedelic trip. Um, a lot of times people during that trip, they, they see aspects of the jungle, um, jaguars, snakes um, in that experience. The other way for DMT is to smoke DMT. And if you smoke DMT, it very rapidly within, within seconds will 
as I understand it, transport somebody from this reality to some other reality that um, is very different, that often has entities associated with it. So on the, on the spectrum of psychedelics, it's a, it's one of the more potent experiential. Yes. It's yeah. one of the most potent and it only lasts for about 10 to 15 minutes. But during that time, the, there's really no perception of time from the people who have smoked it. So they can be lost in this space internally for a long time, but then they come back. Um, oftentimes report having conversations with alien entities or spirits, um, enlightenment, uh, but it's very subjectively different than say a psilocybin mm -hmm. type peak experience where um, it's a, it's a, you're separated from your reality and your ego, but there's still something there, but the DMT or 5-methoxy DMT is even more potent, uh, is, is qualitatively different that takes people to other realms where they often more often interact with with entities and beings so you have just a complete loss of normal perception you're in a completely different space right. it's right. very visual like there's a there's intense visual hallucinations yes. Yes. and it's short acting so that goes back to maybe what you were saying earlier so this thing looks a lot like serotonin your body can break mm -hmm. it down right away it's not sticking and getting stuck in the receptor like lsd right. so it's very right. short so a lot of the a lot of the stuff that you hear is you know you'll you'll have people describe these experiences that are very bizarre and very yeah, profound yeah. as you as you mentioned but then they say things like well maybe this is this is the molecule involved in dreaming or near death experiences mm -hmm. is that is there any evidence for that at all i do not think there is um i think Near, in a near-death experience, people do see visions, they hallucinate, they communicate with deceased loved ones, um, there are visuals. Um, so I, th I can see why people would sort of con confound the two. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a study, a uh, survey study done, I think it was maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, where they actually took people who had had near-death experiences and were experienced psychonauts mm -hmm. and asked them, okay, which one of the drugs is your near-death experience most like? Mm -hmm. And by and large, the, the, the drug that they said the near-death experience was most like was ketamine. Ketamine? Ketamine. It wasn't DMT. It was ketamine. Interesting. So It's very different. It's a dissociative... Right, drug. right. It's not a visual hallucinogen like DMT is. Right, right. So I thought that 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 was just a survey report, but it was people who had had actual near death experiences who were experienced with psychedelics. Interesting. And and the drug it wasn't you know it wasn't a close tie between DMT or ketamine. It was ketamine. It was ketamine. Um, it was not DMT. So I think there's some disconnect between what people are calling a near death experience and what they actually are subjectively. Mm -hmm. um, or what they would like them to be like, or what they would like to imagine a near-death experience yeah, yeah. to be like a DMT trip. And what about the idea that DMT is an endogenous compound in the brain or elsewhere in the body? Is that true at all? Could it be acting, could it, is it even feasible that it could be acting as an endogenous neurotransmitter? There's a probability of not zero, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there are small amounts of DMT that 
can be found um, in various tissues of the body, in the brain, particularly I think the pineal gland has been the one that's been most looked at. What it's doing there is it, is it a metabolic byproduct or is it actually doing something? Uh, there's, there's no evidence that I've seen that's really convincing to me that it's actually acting as a neurotransmitter to do anything. For one, there's just not enough of it in the brain. Mm -hmm. So um, very, very small levels. Very, very small amount. And given its affinity for the receptor or how sticky it is for the receptor, which it's, it's not, and all the amount of serotonin that's there, it's, it's even if you're talking about microdosing and occupying a small fraction of the receptors, it's, it's not even that much DMT in the brain. Gotcha. And in some, some animal models, um, in a mouse model, to get a significant amount of DMT produced in the brain that would induce a psychedelic type behavior in a, in a, a proxy behavior in a mouse is called a head twitch. Mm -hmm. um, the stronger that a psychedelic is in humans, the stronger that drugs will give head twitches to a mouse. So it'll just sit there and twitch um, several times. And to get a mouse to have a statistically significant increase in head twitches from endogenous DMT, they had to do some special genetic and pharmacological tricks to shut down some enzymes um, in this mouse to get enough DMT to produce something that was measurable. Mm -hmm. um, and you're not going to be able to do that in a, in a person. Yeah. Um, so so the, I, idea, I think, yeah. the idea that it's causing dreams, for example, every night is pr pretty much impossible. I, I don't think it is. But yeah, I think from a from a receptor pharmacology standpoint, that the probability that there's enough DMT in the brain to activate serotonin two A receptors where they need to be activated, there's you know many many more simple explanations for for dreaming than mm -hmm. endogenous DMT. And I think the last big one is this connection to the pineal gland. Mm -hmm. There's this idea out there that the pineal gland, the, the so-called third eye right in the middle of the brain, mm -hmm. it's synthesizing DMT and releasing it. Is there any evidence to support that at all? There, there is evidence that the pineal gland is, is making DMT. Um, a, lot of, a lot of that work was uh, done by Steve Barker, who was at LSU, the other LSU in Baton Rouge for a while. And he'd done a lot of, he has done a lot of really good work with looking at and DMT in the pineal gland. And I think, I think it's convincingly demonstrated that there is a small amount of DMT that is produced in the pineal gland. But is, is that because it's a, is it a, just a byproduct of metabolism of something mm -hmm. else? Or um, I've, I've not seen any convincing evidence that it's actually being used as a neurotransmitter. The, the pineal gland's main function is to make melatonin mm -hmm. um, that regulates the, you know, the sleep cycle and melatonin is very, very closely related in structure to both serotonin and DMT. In fact, melatonin is, you have to make serotonin to make melatonin. It's, gotcha. So very just close. maybe, maybe in the process of making melatonin, you just get a tiny amount of DMT as a byproduct or something like that. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. What, um, I guess what, what areas are you most excited about for the next few years? Not necessarily that your lab is focused mm -hmm. on, but anyone working on psychedelics. What do you think is, what do you think are some of the strongest candidates for, you know, real breakthroughs between psychedelics and some sort of therapeutic application in humans that gets approved? Mm. I think 
considering psychedelics as 2A activators, and a lot of people will put MDMA as a psychedelic, but pharmacologically it's, it's not, it's a intactogen because it doesn't work through the 2A. Hmm. Uh, but it oftentimes gets lumped into psychedelic therapy. Uh, I think um, that's very exciting. And I, I think we'll hopefully see that given approval. Um, they've already done and um, completed phase three trials. Uh, MAPS has already done that. So they're, they're pretty far along. I think for psilocybin, that's going to be the next major game changer. Mm-hmm. is when the phase three trials are completed, there are two organizations now doing the phase three trials. There's USONA uh, that's out of Madison, Wisconsin, and you've got Compass Pathways that's out of the UK. And they're both doing phase three trials for different aspects of depression. One is treatment-resistant depression, which is the Compass, and one is major depressive disorder, which is USONA. And um, I think within the next three to five years, they finished out those uh, phase three trials, get, get good data, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, I think one of the things I've been most excited about is some of the work of what Peter Hendricks has been doing at University of Alabama. And um, rather than taking sort of your middle-class white um, uh, millennial or, and, and giving them a antidepressant therapy, um, what Peter is doing is he is treating essentially homeless African-American crack addicts Hmm. with psilocybin. Wow. um, Which is, you can imagine um, taking people off the streets. They've been on drugs for almost their whole life, hard drugs. uh, And uh, his results uh, so far have just really been astounding. Um, Some of the, 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 these people have been, uh, have been transformed. They get themselves out of the ghetto. They're seeking social services. Is this published work yet? It's not published yet. Oh, wow. It's not published yet. Um, but it's, it's some, I think when it is published, that's, that's, I think what I'm most excited about is not so much depression. Um, I think, I think that's going to be a given and it's going to help a lot of people, mm-hmm. but the kind of people that, that I'm seeing, uh, that need the most help. Really. Peter's been successful with. These are the dregs of, of, of society. These are the people that have been cast out, have, yeah. been, have been tossed away. There's nothing left for them. And they are coming back into society, reconnecting with family, seeking social services, staying abstinent. Um, it's really having this transformative effect. And I think to me, in terms of the, the therapy, I think that's really the the most exciting to me is, is being able to help really this unhelpable population that's just been written off. Wow. That's amazing. So Peter Hendricks, you said, right, right. He's at the university of Alabama in Birmingham. Wow. I didn't even know that was going on. That sounds really exciting. Yeah. I think, um, he's had that study going for several years now. Hmm. Um, it's, it's hard to recruit. He's, he said for that to, um, to get those, those people to, to come in and actually go through the therapy. Uh, but it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And then there's other, uh, they're using, I think, psilocybin therapy out at uh, one of the groups at UCSF uh, for like AIDS survivors. Um, or uh, there's several, several different areas now where it's just expanding out of major depression. I think that there's over 30 clinical trials now registered on clinicaltrials.gov using psychedelic 
um, mm-hmm. as usually a psilocybin. Um, okay. Yeah. There's, there's a lot going on and like, even in the private sector, you're seeing all of these companies spring up. Oh yeah. What do you like, what do you make of the the private sector? Is this, you know, how much of this is legitimate and how much is just people trying to capitalize on a hot market right now? Like, do you, do you expect most of these companies to actually do lasting work or do you think that there's, there's a, a bit of exuberance going on? I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, um, the company that I'm, I'm involved with, Eleusis, we formed in 2013 and we were the very first company aimed at developing psychedelics for therapeutic use. And we were alone in the woods for a long time mm-hmm. until Compass Pathways came around. And then once they had success, then you had MindMed came around. And now it seems like every, every day there's three or four new ones that are popping up. Um, it's just amazing to, to see that where, you know, 10 years ago, you tell somebody you're doing psychedelic research and they roll your eyes at you. Yeah, and, yeah. and now it's, oh, tell me more, tell me more. But I think um, it's really, it's the Wild West right yeah. now it's it's you've you've got a lot of money the the a lot of money from the cannabis side of things now yep. that that's been saturated they've they've made millions off of cannabis where do we go next it's psychedelics so there's a lot of all right here's an idea there's an idea um a lot of different companies are springing up with different takes on things mm-hmm. um some of them i think will be successful some of them most of them probably will not it'll be a boom and a bust um how long that cycle is going to be i don't know but i think uh, there will be um, at least a few that are successful. I hope we're one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I think, I think it's really going to be transformative. And for, for some of these smaller companies that are coming up with some, some new ideas, sort of thinking outside the box, it'll be interesting to see how those come up. So your company, Eleusis, did you, did you start that company? No, no. Um, that was, uh, founded by Shlomi Raz who uh, is a former reform, I think, reformed Wall Street banker mm-hmm. um, who uh, contacted me, gave me a call in my office to just chat about research. Uh, I think it was 2013, 2014. And it's uh, turned into a real partnership where um, they've licensed all the anti-inflammatory IP that we've been developing um, over the last several years. Uh, so I'm sort of I've been kind of the driver of the, the anti-inflammatory research effort there, but officially um, on this uh, advisory board, mm-hmm. uh, chairman of the advisory board um, of Eleusis and uh, um, sponsored researcher. And are they focused just on inflammation treatments or are they working on other, other avenues as well? Oh, other avenues as well. Um, recently uh, Eleusis has acquired uh, ketamine clinics, uh, in uh, Texas in order to expand in-house clinical uh, testing facilities to do mm-hmm. uh, phase one, phase two clinical trials uh, with uh, novel formulations of ketamine and also with psilocybin. So um, we believe that there's, uh, I think, really kind of multidisciplinary. We're on, in one area looking at novel formulations of ketamine and psilocybin and treating depression looking at the use of LSD to treat Alzheimer's disease as a neurodegenerative disease. And uh, they've already done their phase one safety trial with that. Hmm. I think there's when, a lot of... When you say novel formulations of ketamine and psilocybin, w- what does that actually mean? Um, 
I think that's that's we just had our new website go up next week, and it's uh, based on uh, the one that we're looking at now. It's it's a formulation of ketamine that we're calling Ket Plus. But is it ketamine and other things? How is it different from what's already used? Um, it's a combination of ketamine uh, with two other drugs to prevent some of the side effects. I see. I see. That are often associated with the use of ketamine that gotcha. we think will enhance uh, patient response. Okay, so it's um, that's it is a novel formulation. It's ke- it's ketamine plus these additional drugs right, that right. in this case reduce side effects. Right. Right. And then is it similar for psilocybin? Are people coming up with formulations where it's psilocybin plus some other stuff? There, there are a lot of people doing things with psilocybin out there. Um, for example, there's one company that's developing sub, sublingual psilocybin, hmm. where it's like psilocybin on a basically a, one of those uh, breath t- strip dissolvable things, tab. Dissolvable yeah. things. There are uh, people... Uh, trying to come up with new analogs of psilocybin, thinking that psilocybin may not be the best drug. Maybe we can come up with a better drug. Uh, so there's, there's a lot going on in the space right now um, uh, that it's, 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 it's gotten beyond my ability to keep track of on, <laughs> on a regular basis. Yeah, one thing that I'm hearing in the psilocybin side, which is something that you hear on the cannabis side where I work all the time, is this idea of the entourage effect. Mm-hmm. So maybe one one last area I'll ask you about is with magic mushrooms, you've got psilocybin and then the active drug that comes from that psilocin. And is there anything else that's being produced by the mushrooms or is that all hypothetical right now? That's pretty much hypothetical. Although within a mushroom, you you are getting a half a dozen or so alkaloids that are very similar in structure Mm -hmm. to psilocybin. For example, there's nor nor psilocin, there's basicin, there's uh, things that look very similar. But in terms of the actual, an actual drug that will produce a peak experience, so far it's, it's psilocybin and, and psilocin. So the, the other drugs that are in there, they may be adding a little bit of texture to the experience, but it's not formally been, mm-hmm. um, been looked at. And there's certain, not that I'm aware of any other um, alkaloid that's in a mushroom that will really activate the 2A receptor to produce these psychoactive events. Interesting. So are there any, um, are there any areas of research that you think are completely untapped yet where no one has really looked in regards to psychedelics? So you've got like all the depression stuff going on. You've got all this inflammation stuff that you described. You've got the end of life anxiety stuff. Is there, is there anything uh, is there anything exciting that's maybe going on quietly that, that hasn't really come into the limelight yet? Oh, I think it's what hasn't been done yet. Uh, my father sometimes has said of, of, of psychedelics, you know, they're the philosopher's stone. Um, what, you know, what aren't they good for? Uh, we, we, we have found that there are some disease models that they don't work in. So that's a good thing. It's, 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 it's not going to be a panacea, but I think mm-hmm. there are so many, so many disorders and diseases that are yet to be looked at um, beyond inflammation, beyond psychiatry that they could be beneficial for. We've, we've got some evidence that it could, they could be beneficial for diabetes and metabolic disorder. Mm. Um, high cholesterol in our, in our model, we, we reduce cholesterol with 
with exposure to uh, to our drugs. And that's probably not through an anti-inflammatory pathway. Which there, drugs are doing that? Um, we saw that with DOI. That's DOI. a prototypical drug. And uh, we we normalize glucose homeostasis in this model. There's It's like a pre-diabetes model. So there are there appear to be a lot of effects, um, not just limited to anti-inflammatory or normalizing neuronal circuits for, for psychiatric disorder. Um, the, the 2A receptor, you know, it's literally on basically every cell and tissue in your body and what hmm. it's doing there, we don't know. Um, I think there is some exploratory work now that's going into pain, looking at, you know, maybe analgesia. Um, there's just... I think so many open areas is just waiting for somebody to look in, in model X and, and see if it's having a therapeutic effect or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully with, you know, the DEA working with researchers more than they have historically with mm -hmm. this influx of money going into research, hopefully that's just going to start happening more. Yeah. One, one of the, one of the things that hasn't really been happening that much is government sponsored research. Uh, pretty much all of the research that's been going on, all of the studies, the the MDMA studies that have happened, the clinical trials, the psilocybin trials out of Hopkins, NYU, um, those have all been funded by private sources, private donations, private foundations. Uh, in fact, uh, a large portion of my laboratory is funded by a private donation. Another portion is funded by Eleusis. Mm -hmm. um, there's no NIH funding for psychedelic research per se. Uh, and I'm hopeful for that. Um, I think that NIH is, is receptive. I think uh, once they're shown as medicines and successful, uh, I had uh, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health come to a presentation of mine uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we had a very nice chat about the model and psychedelics and their therapeutic effect. So I think they get it. Um, mm -hmm. So... I think once it, it really comes out of the closet, psychedelic research, and we get government funding um, in addition to private funding, that's really going to sort of open it up to really understand the true medicinal medicinal value of these. So we're not really dependent upon a small group of people to really drive the funding of these studies. Well, that's great. Yeah, I hope it keeps moving in that direction. Um, we've been talking for almost two hours, mm. Charles, so thank you for taking the time. Um, is there anything, any, any final words that you want to leave people with? Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, I think a lot of people don't really appreciate where we are now today mm -hmm. in terms of psychedelics. Um, when I started in this field, my father told me it was going to be the kiss of death for my career because hmm. nobody cared about it. Nobody. Um, but I uh, persevered, kept at it. Um, made some discoveries, and somewhere along the way, uh, a group here, therapeutic efficacy, a group there, it helps with depression. Um, and it's really snowballed to this, this point where um, I think my father thought he was going to be dead before any of this would happen. Mm -hmm. And to just the way that society has changed its attitudes and becoming more open and more accepting uh, about the use of, of psychedelics and, and you get people's grandparents asking now about it as opposed to, Oh, what is that? And it's just this, this fundamental shift, this paradigm shift in, in our culture has occurred for the better in our understanding of psychedelics. And I really do believe that 
there's a tremendous amount of healing opportunity to in these medicines uh, to be developed. And whether or not, I know there's a debate now, do you have corporations are now developing psychedelics and taking the, the magic out of it? I, I think that's, that's a straw man. Um, the psychedelics are what they are, whether they come from a laboratory or from a plant. And as Dennis McKenna um, said at an event um, a couple of years back, we were at together. It's the magic is not from where the psychedelic comes from. The, the magic is the molecule and whether that molecule comes from a laboratory or a plant, it's the same thing. So I don't think there should really be any stigma on you know developing medicines if it comes from a plant if it comes from a laboratory that we all want to help people and just because say we're at a university or we're at a company we're not just all trying to make money we really do want to develop these medicines and, and help end and alleviate suffering and so i think the community kind of needs to get over a lot of the schism that's developed and just come together and realize it's all for the greater good and we're all trying we're all trying to really to help each other well, Professor Charles Nichols, thank you for joining us. That was amazing. Um, I hope to talk to you again at some point. Um, and, and again, just thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It was, it was a pleasure.